You are now listening to the September 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we'll learn about the Apostle Matthew. Matthew's original name was Levi. So in the book of Mark and Luke, Matthew is referenced as Levi. In the book of Matthew, Levi refers to himself as Matthew. This observation has significance, which we will consider today. There aren't many records about Matthew, but from a few available verses in the Bible, we can glean how he was a disciple of Jesus. We will see his dedication for the mission of spreading the gospel and will find his beautiful sacrifice. Today, through the life of the Apostle Matthew, we open ourselves up to the spiritual lessons God gives us. We will draw our lessons largely from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. When the Roman Empire conquered other countries, the first thing they did was to levy taxes on the citizens of occupied lands. To do that, they selected tax collectors from the native residents in each country. What was the process of selecting tax collectors? They used a bidding system. For example, those that wanted to be tax collectors would submit a bid on how much they would collect in their own village that year. Whoever submitted the highest bid would be appointed as the tax collector. If the bidder said something like, I will collect $100,000 of tax from this village this coming year, and his bid amount was the highest, he would become the tax collector. He would then have to submit $100,000 to the Roman government that year, no matter what. If the tax collector were to fail to collect that amount, he would still have to submit that amount to the Roman government. That meant he would have to make up the difference with his own money. However, the Roman government did not care how much the tax collector would collect from his own people beyond that amount. Once the full amount was reached, the tax collector could keep whatever was extra beyond the agreed amount in the first place. The tax collector would pocket anything in excess of the bid amount. From the perspective of the Roman government, tax collectors were important people that brought them income to finance their empire. Anyone that did not comply with the tax law would face serious consequences. The Roman government supported their tax collectors by allotting them a few Roman soldiers to serve them for tax collection. So the tax collectors took advantage of the power the Roman government gave them and squeezed their own people. During that time, tax collectors collected anywhere from 3.5 to 15% of the value of anything they could. When a notorious tax collector is assigned in a village, he would impose the maximum tax on everything he could find. To gain much more returns than what he would have to pay to the Roman government, a tax collector imposes taxes on anything they can see. 
to force people to comply with his demands, he would instill fear using the Roman soldiers and would not hesitate to resort to cruel tactics. Matthew's jurisdiction for tax collection was primarily the city called Capernaum. The traders would pass through this city to go to Damascus from Jerusalem. Matthew must have stopped many traders with large cargo, inspected the contents thoroughly, and imposed maximum taxes on each item. It was also most likely that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who lived in Capernaum, must have paid taxes to Matthew as well. Tax collectors were Jews, but the Jews shunned them. The Jewish community considered them sinners, and as such, they were banned from entering the synagogues. Also, they were not qualified to partake in the legal Jewish proceedings. For instance, they could not serve as witnesses, even if they witnessed a crime. They were seen as con artists and treacherous individuals, and everyone detested them. Why do you think, then, Matthew became a tax collector, even at the cost of being a social outcast? The reason is simple. He could make a lot of money. The meaning of Matthew's original name, Levi, was to unite. That was a noble name. Perhaps his parents named him Levi so he would praise God, walk with him, and become united with the Lord. But for some reason, he wandered away and became a tax collector and became an extorter of people's hard-earned money. For the tribe of Levi, their union was with God. They were to praise God as his priests. But for some reason, the union Matthew the Levi accomplished was with money, not with God. Then Jesus passed by where Matthew had his work desk laid out for the purpose of collecting taxes. Then Jesus reached out to Matthew and called on him. Let's read the first part of Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Jesus called to follow him. When Jesus called on Matthew, his response was nothing short of amazing. When Jesus told Matthew, Follow me, Matthew got up immediately and followed Jesus. That meant he left his work desk unattended. There must have been many ledgers on his desk. There must have been a ledger that had the list of people to collect taxes from and a ledger that kept track of the profit after paying the Roman government and so on. These ledgers were the only motivation for him to work as a tax collector. These ledgers were everything to him. These ledgers represented the material things that Matthew valued most in his life. But when Jesus called on Matthew to follow him, he got up from the desk, got up from the material things, and followed Jesus. It was difficult to become a tax collector at the time. They had to be good at mathematics, speak multiple languages, such as Arabic, Greek, and Hebrew, and in some instances, they had to speak Latin for the Romans. So Matthew had to work hard to become a tax collector, 
to work with numbers and to impose taxes on others, he had to be calculating and logical. When he took off following Jesus, he had to be fully aware of the implications of leaving his work desk unattended. His response, in fact, is quite mind-boggling, and we should think about it further as to what must have gone through this calculating and logical mind. We might get a hint to this quandary from a parable written in the book of Matthew, but not anywhere else. It is a parable of the hidden treasure in the field. In that parable, a farmer was working on his field. He felt something in the ground. He said to himself, What is this? And dug it out. It was a large container full of treasure. There was no banks at the time, and wars erupted quite often, so people usually hid their valuables in their fields. But when the war ended, if they had left their homes or died during the war, there would be no one that would know about the valuables left buried in the fields. The farmer discovered a treasure that had been hidden in his field for a long time. What should he do? He did the only thing he could. He went to the owner of the field and asked him, I want to buy that field. The owner might have said to the farmer, Okay, since you worked on that field for many years, I'll sell it to you. So the farmer sold everything he owned and bought the field. Now, without knowing what was going on, how do you think his family and friends reacted? They probably said something like, Why on earth would you buy that field? You could have just worked on it, as you have, and made a good living. How do you think the farmer might have responded? He might have smiled and told them, I found it. I found it. This parable that only appears in the book of Matthew gives us a clue to the quandary we mentioned earlier. It may be interpreted as his confession about finding Jesus. Matthew's life at his tax collecting desk was about how much profit he could make. That would be the difference after paying taxes to the Roman government and the total amount of taxes he would collect. His life must have been about chasing after money, but he got up and left that desk. He left that life with no regrets. People who were close to him could have said, Why? Why are you giving up the golden goose? Why are you quitting the tax collector's job that makes you a lot of money? You gave up much too much to get this far. What is it about following that Jesus guy? Then Matthew might have said this to them, smiling, I found him. I found him. I found Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom I will not regret to give my life for. Finding the treasure and making it part of me has been an important issue for many people throughout human history. Until Matthew met Jesus, he lived in a materialistic world, but once he met Jesus, he discovered something much more valuable. That was something that had enormous spiritual value that far surpassed anything materialistic. I found him, the one I can give my life for, the one whom I am willing to put down everything for and not hesitate to follow. That is Jesus Christ. Beloved listeners, 
Have you met Jesus Christ? Then do not put value on or give your heart to anything in this world, but discover the spiritual value that only Jesus can afford. Commit your heart to Jesus Christ and love him and follow him. I hope we will all be able to do so. This concludes today's episode of the Twelve Apostles. We will continue on with the story of Matthew next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Yeah.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is bold claims. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Today we continue in our sermon series looking at those circumstances, those events, those divine moments that led Jesus ultimately to the cross. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We are living at a truly unique time in world history. I said it before, I'll say it again, that those living in previous generations could not fathom the world that you and I live in. Planes, trains, automobiles, we can get from this side of the world to the other side of the world in less than half a day. We can send a message to the other side of the world in less than half a second. It's truly incredible, the world we are living in. But the pressure with that is intense. Now, one of the unique things about living in this day and age is we have access to all the crazy things people say, right? Amen. Do I hear an amen? It used to be the crazy things people said. You didn't hear most of it. But now because everybody's got a platform and we all have computers, we get privy to all the insanity that is out there. And people are saying some crazy and outrageous things. Um, There are some outrageously bold claims that have been made over the last couple of years, for sure. There's been no shortage of outrageously bold political claims. Do I hear an amen? There have been no shortage of outrageously bold environmental claims that have been made. Yeah, we're going to be gone in 10 years, right? Stop drinking out of straws or we're going to be dead in 10 years. There has been no shortage of outrageously bold woke claims. There have been no shortage of outrageously bold medical claims. But before we point the finger at this world and go, it's crazy. There's all these outrageously bold claims being made by people all over the internet all the time. It's not just those in secular society that are making outrageously bold statements. I've heard some outrageously bold claims coming out of the church and Christians within the church. So for example, there are no shortage of people in the church today claiming to receive special divine words from God. We are in many respects, we are the God told me so generation. We are the God told me so generation. Listen, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, Read your Bible out loud. Amen? That is it. (laughs) Remember, one of the core tenets of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. This is our final source of authority. We don't just believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, which means that all God wanted to say, he said. Everything that you need to be saved and to live a life pleasing to the Lord is here. It's in this book. Amen? But here's the deal. There are times and there are circumstances when the outrageously bold claims a person makes simply cannot be ignored. And folks, there is no single person where this is more true than the one man who literally divided history, and that is Jesus. Jesus stands alone, I mean alone, in a category all by himself as somebody who said the most outrageously bold things you've ever heard in your life. The only difference, Jesus backed up his claims in ways that left no doubt that his claims weren't just empty words, but absolute truth. But folks, it was these bold claims, these bold claims that became one of the key reasons that Jesus ended up on the cross. What led to this? 
It was the bold claims of Christ. Let me give you an example. So, for example, one such outrageously bold statement was when Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2. This is, again, not even our main passage today, but listen to this. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now here's the deal. That's an outrageously bold statement. Son, your sins are forgiven. It was such an explosive statement that the religious leaders who were there immediately recognized it for what it was. Because here's how they respond. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Can you hear what's coming out of his mouth? It's crazy. He is blaspheming. I mean, this is the worst. This is a, in Jewish culture and really in Christian culture. And the worst accusation that you can level against someone is you're blasphemous. And that's what they're saying to Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Remember, Jesus wasn't just speaking as a rabbi or a teacher. He was actually speaking as someone who had authority. That's what so often perplexed the people as they listened to Jesus. They said, he doesn't just speak as a rabbi or a teacher. He speaks as, this, as though he himself has this authority. Now listen, claiming to have the authority to forgive sins is the kind of spiritual statement that Jesus could seemingly easily make because there's no real way to verify such a claim. Well, I have the authority to forgive sins. You're all forgiven, right? I can say that to you all right now. I have the authority to forgive sins. You're all forgiven. And you go, well, well how do we know you have that authority? Well, just take my word for it, right? <laughs> I wash them away. So to prove that Jesus does indeed have the spiritual authority to forgive sins, Jesus does something physically irrefutable to demonstrate that he has this authority. And here's what he does. You know it well. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why? And I love it. Jesus is like, why do you question my authority? Of course I have the authority to forgive sins. Don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God. And then he says this, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all. It was irrefutable. Everybody saw it. It wasn't in the back room for two people to see. It was out there for everyone to see. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, here's the kicker. This outrageously bold claim to forgive sins, I mean, as outrageously bold, you go, well, how can you go higher than that? How can you be more outrageous than I have the authority to forgive sins? Well, Jesus did. It actually, this outrageously bold statement goes hand in hand with another one. And it was Jesus's outrageously bold statement for anyone to convict him of sin. So get this, I can forgive you because I'm not a sinner. You think I'm crazy. Now, you know I'm joking, but if I wasn't joking, what would you think? He's insane. Now, some of you already think I'm insane. That would only make it easier to believe. I know. I know. 
John 8, 45 and 46, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? While Jesus's opponents certainly accused him of sinning, they could never prove him of sinning. As a matter of fact, on the night that Jesus was arrested and he went to his trial, he issued a similar challenge. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Again, what would you think of someone that you ran into who not only claimed, who not only claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, but also claimed to be someone within whom there is no sin? I can tell you this much. Many of the religious leaders in the first century thought Jesus was a demon-possessed lunatic. And it was because of such outrageously bold claims as I have the authority to forgive sins and nobody can accuse me of any sin that Jesus ended up going to the cross. Now, all of that in way of introduction to our passage today. Here's the deal. Out of all of Jesus's outrageously bold statements, I'm going to do a year-long series on this because so much that came out of Jesus's mouth was often over the top and outrageously bold. But of all the outrageously bold statements that Jesus made, perhaps none was as confusing and perplexing, not only to the religious leaders, but his own disciples, than the one that we're going to look at today. So church and those watching online, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today. We'll be in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 22. Church, again, hear the word of God this morning. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. I mean, it was chaotic. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these horrible <laughs> creatures away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, here it is, folks, brace yourselves. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Amen. The sufficiency of scripture, the sufficiency of the things that Jesus said. Again, church, hear the word of God this morning. So in our passage, Jesus first shocks everyone. He stuns everyone by going into the temple and cleansing it. By the way, he does this. Remember, we're in John chapter two here. He does this at the beginning of his ministry, but at the triumphal entry, as he enters Jerusalem during Passion Week, what's the first thing he does? He goes into the temple and he cleanses it again. He does it twice. He does it once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. But here he cleanses it for the first time and everybody's heads are surely spinning. He drives out the, it says he not only drove out the people, he overturned their tables, money's flying everywhere. The sheep and the oxen are driven out as well. So it's just picture a chaotic uh, picture and Jesus with a whip. Whoops, whoops. I mean, it's hard to imagine Jesus that way, but that's who he was. He was so zealous about the purity of uh, God's temple. But as if that weren't outrageous enough, Jesus follows it up by saying something so outrageous, so over the top that those listening can scarcely wrap their minds around it. And it is simply this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. 
The religious leaders that were listening to him, they didn't understand it, nor did his disciples. Those present immediately confront Jesus with the utter impossibility and just absurdity of what he just said, because they say this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. What's wrong with you, man? You will raise it up in three days? Are you kidding me? This outrageously bold statement was so over the top that it was actually brought up at Jesus' trial when he was arrested and brought before Caiaphas. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But none could be found. They couldn't find any, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy this temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So here comes some people bearing true witness. Jesus did say that. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Why? Because he was about to show them that he could do that, right? They were about to put him to death in just a few hours. He would die. They'd put him in the tomb and he would rise from the dead. And what Jesus said was true, was true. Now, of course, we know something that those living at the time didn't understand, even his own disciples. And it was this, Jesus wasn't referring to the temple in Jerusalem. He was referring to his body. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. Even if Jesus was referring to the temple, and by the way, my wife and I are leading a tour to Israel, um, and Tina and Jeff are as well. This is actually, when you go to Jerusalem, we'll go to this one spot where it has a huge model of Jerusalem. It's about as big as the stage and you get to walk all the way around it. This is the temple at that model. Um, but even if Jesus was talking about the physical temple, he said, destroy that temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Could Jesus have done that? Of course he could have. All Jesus had to do was say the word and the physical temple could have been rebuilt in three seconds, let alone three days. But herein lies the irony of Jesus' statement. Jesus' statement was more, even more outrageous than the religious leaders fully understood. See, they thought he was talking about the physical temple, and that seemed outrageous to them. And it was, because that's an outrageous thing. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Little did they know that Jesus was saying, saying something even more outrageous. What Jesus was claiming that was this, that if they put him to death, he had the authority to raise himself from the dead. Question for you. What is more of an outrageously bold statement? To say that I can rebuild the physical temple in three days if you destroy it? Or that if you put me to death, I can raise myself to life after three days? Which of those two is more outrageously bold? They're both outrageously bold, but clearly raising oneself from the dead, having the authority to do that is far more outrageous. They didn't even know it at the time that that's what he was saying. If they had fully understood it on the spot, they might've sought to kill him right then and there. And I'm not kidding. By the way, this wasn't the only time Jesus claimed to have the authority to raise himself from the dead. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He claimed to be without sin. And now he's claiming he has the authority within himself to raise himself from the dead. Let me give you an example. John, John raising from the dead, there's the tomb. Uh, John chapter 10. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. It's not put me to death and God will raise me. I will do it. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have, say that word with me, authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. As you can see in this particular circumstance, Jesus doesn't veil his word, his words. I mean, he's just outrageously bold. I have the authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to take it back up again, which of course caused the Jews in John chapter 10 to freak out. 
Because now Jesus isn't hiding his words like he was when he said, destroy this temple. Here's how they respond. The very next set of verses. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? I mean, Jesus, I told you, one of the things that led Jesus to the cross was they literally thought he was demon-possessed. They thought he was, he was insane. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that is why I said, out of all of the outrageously bold statements Jesus made, perhaps none was as confusing or perplexing, not only to the religious leaders, but his own disciples as this one right here. But here's the bigger question. Here's the bigger question. So what? So what? How does this have a bearing on me? Jesus said these things in the first century. We're living in the 21st century. Why does any of this matter to me? Let me give you one huge reason why Jesus's outrageously bold statement about destroying the temple and raising it again in three days matters to you today. And I bet, I bet it's something many of you didn't even see. And it is this. Jesus' statement was outrageous, not just because he claimed to have the authority to raise himself from the dead, but also because he was radically redefining what constituted the true temple. The true temple wasn't the physical building standing in Jerusalem where the Jews offered endless sacrifices day in and day out. The true temple was what? Jesus. Yeah, this is the Jesus answer where you can give it and it's safe every time. Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the true temple. The temple that we see in the Old Testament was a temporary structure pointing forward to the true temple, which was Christ himself. Here's something interesting. In the book of Revelation, John, who writes the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And guess what's not in the new Jerusalem? A temple. A temple. I don't have this verse for you, but it's Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Amen. Listen, as outrageous as it is that Jesus would consider himself to be the true temple of God, here's why it matters to you. Here's why it gets even more outrageous for you and for me. The Bible describes, brace yourselves, the Bible describes those of us who are believers as both part of the temple and priests in the temple. That's right. You're going to walk up to people in this generation and go, guess what? I'm a priest. And they're going to go, you're crazy. And you go, so is the guy I'm following. His name's Jesus. And you're going to go, guess what? I'm the temple of the living God. God dwells in me. And they're going to go, no, 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 no. You got to go to church to find God. No, he's in me. You got to go to some temple to find God. No, he's in me. I am part of that temple and a priest in that temple. And if you don't believe me, listen to Peter. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You guys know 1 Corinthians 3.16. You know John 3.16, right? Here's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? You are the temple. You are living stones in whom God dwells. You are priests in the kingdom of God. Listen, if you ask the average person to describe themselves, even the average Christian, they'll start by telling you what they do for a living or their family situation. You know, I'm the youngest of four or perhaps their nationality or perhaps their political affiliation. But folks, as believers, if we ever get asked that question, 
We should be just as outrageously bold as Jesus was in the first century here in the 21st century. Amen? You want to know who I am? I'm a priest for God. And the temple of God resides in me. And folks, I've said it before. I'll say it again. That means every building you enter, every threshold you cross, every conversation you enter, that place is sanctified. Why? Because a priest is now present. And you're going to go, no, 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 I can't be a priest. Bill, you're the pastor. No, 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 no. Got news for you. You're a priest. And I'm a priest. I taught you that the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority. Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone, okay? We're saved by grace alone, not grace and penance or not grace and confession. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And again, the difference, and again, I'm not bashing Catholics, but the difference between Catholics and Protestants is a Catholic will say, I'm saved by, my, I'm saved by grace through faith. But a Protestant is going to add one little word to the end of that sentence. I'm saved by grace through faith alone. Not by grace through faith and penance, not by grace through faith and anything else, but by grace through faith, I am fully justified in the sight of God. That's a big distinction. But here's the point. Those weren't the only core tenets to come out of the Protestant Reformation. One of the core tenets to come out of the Protestant Reformation was this, the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Folks, we had, I don't know, what, do you, what would you guess? 75 people up here on stage singing? Do you know that before the Protestant Reformation, only the priests could sing? You could go to church, but you didn't do anything. You couldn't even use your voice to glorify God. It was the priests alone that could sing. It was the priests alone that could read the word of God. That's it. And it was Luther and the Protestant reformers that said, no, the Bible says we are a priest, a kingdom of priests, and that we are to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Amen? Folks, you aren't just anybody in this generation. Do you know who you are? You are priests that God has set in this generation. And again, this generation is insane. There is no doubt that we have just come through a major contraction, right? Jesus said, you'll know the end is drawing near because it'll be like a woman in labor. There'll be contractions, okay? Well, the last couple of years, again, we were in a contraction and it feels like it let off just temporarily, but with Ukraine, and I'm thinking maybe another contraction's coming. We'll see how bad it gets. But of this, you can be sure we were in a contraction. We were in a contraction in the, one of the craziest times in world history, if not the craziest time in world history, where there's planes, trains, automobiles, there's electricity. You can get from this side of the world to the other side of the world in less than half a day. You can send a message in less than half a second. Those and other generations could not have fathomed the pressures that you and I have to deal with living in this generation. But who has God set in this generation? You. You are the priest that God has set in this generation. Not anyone else, not someone else, you and me. Now, back to our verse. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Not the pastor, not some other people. You, yourselves, you are being built into this house to be a holy priesthood. And here it says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, we're living in a crazy time. If you need a proof of that, just look to Disneyland. The happiest place on earth is now the most insane place on earth, right? It's crazy. But here's the deal. It has left, where we are right now has left many believers wondering, what difference can I make at this point in world history? Folks, the answer to that question is very simple. It's not going to be where you vote, and it's not going to be something that you do in this world per se. 
The answer to that question is simple. Be the priest that God has called you to be, offering the spiritual sacrifices he has called you to give. Folks, what the world needs more than ever are Christians, priests, who are singularly focused upon what God has called them to do, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, this world is spiritually starving. I believe it. I believe the good thing about a contraction that we have gone through and just how crazy it has been, it has left people disillusioned. People are going, wait a minute, can't look to the medical field necessarily, can't look to the politicians necessarily, can't look to the professors necessarily. Where should I look? Listen to me. It is the priests who always are to be the most influential in society. Go back into the Old Testament. It was the priests that were to be the most influential. It was never the politicians. It was never the professors. It is the priests. We may not be the most powerful. Politicians probably have all the power. The professors have academia. Doesn't matter what they have. The priests are always to be the most influential in society. Who cares if others have the power, have the land, have the money? It doesn't matter. We have something they don't have. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, folks. We have what the world needs, and it cannot be stopped. The gospel will go out, and it will transform. But folks, when the priests are silent, that's when society's in trouble. Period, end of sentence. Many of us are going, this society's in trouble because X, Y, and Z. The politicians aren't doing the job. It's the professors in the universities. Yeah, they're part of the problem, but it's when the priests, who are to be the most influential people in society, remain silent, that's when we've got problems. And that is why more than ever, we as God's people need to stand up and proclaim the gospel and point people to Jesus. Folks, Easter is here. It is upon us. Folks, you only get so many Easter's left. Really, you do. You only have so many left. Some of you have one. Some of you have 10. Some of you have 20. I don't know. You only have so many Easter's left. Use it to, pro- to use your voice to proclaim the one true God, the son of God who came and left the glories of heaven, came to earth and died as a propitiation for our sins, one who turns away the wrath of God. Dave opened this by having us do the scripture reading. He opened the service by having us do the scripture reading. The one who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him. Folks, you have been set free from the wrath of God. You are now children of God, but you have what this world needs, the gospel. Do not be ashamed of it. Do not be ashamed of who God has called you to be in this generation and what he has placed in your heart, the gospel. You, believe it or not, are to be the most influential person in this society. You may not be the most powerful. You may not have the most money. You may not have the most land. You may not have most of anything. But of this, you can be sure. You have the spirit of God living in you. You are the temple of the living God. You are a priest in his service. Offer spiritual, acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God everywhere you go. When you walk, again, into a restaurant, many of you are going to go out after church today. And the first thing I want you to think of when you walk in the door is, why didn't I invite Bill? That's the second thing I want you to think. The first thing, the first thing I want you to think when you walk through that door is a priest is now entering this building. And whether that restaurant realizes it now, it is sanctified. It is set apart because a priest has just walked in. The temple of God has just walked in. You, wait, no, no, no. The temple of God is, you got to go to church to, to be in the temple, to be around God. No. Got news for you. The spirit of God dwells in me. This place. And if those in that restaurant knew who had just walked over that threshold and into this room, They would be begging you. They would fall at your feet being begging you to preach the gospel to them. Folks, that's why when the waiter walks up and says, here's your food and you can say, hey, I know you're busy. You go do what you got to do. I'm about to pray for this food. Is there anything I can pray for you for? I've had, I've told you this. I've had, I have had 
waiters and waitresses come back to me in tears having done that. Now I have others that say, just eat your food and leave me alone. I'm not kidding. I have. I've had others that are just like, no, like they look at me like I have leprosy when I say that and they don't want to, so expect that. But others have come back with tears all because I took the risk. I was courageous. And I simply said, is there anything I can pray for you for? Well, why would you do that? Because I'm a priest in the service of God. I'm the temple of the living God. He dwells in me. You don't realize it, but God's in your presence, in my heart. And I want to introduce him to you so that he can dwell in your heart as well. We are to be a priest who are magnifying, glorifying, and worshiping and serving the one true God. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to land here. Folks, whatever you do, do not become distracted, divided, or disillusioned with what's happening in the world. This is exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to be looking at the world as Christians, as saints, as believers, as priests. And he wants us to go, oh, this is horrible. Folks, when the priests are distracted, when the priests are silenced, that's when society's in trouble. The most influential people are to be the priests. Don't let what's going on in this world distract you from who God has called you to be in this generation. Amen? You be just as outrageously bold in the 21st century as Christ was in the first century. And that's where I close today. Seek to be just as outrageously bold in your calling in the 21st century as Jesus was in the first century. Folks, if people think you're insane for living out your faith the way that you do, let them. They did it to our Savior. They're going to do it to us. Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you, God, we want to be priests in this generation. God, many of us, most of us will never be politicians. We'll never be professors. We'll never have the things of this world, the resources of this world. But God, we have something greater than that. We have you in our hearts, dwelling in our hearts. You have commissioned us to be priests for you, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you. God, everywhere we go, may we be priests who are active, who are busy, who are ministering, who are caring. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear those around us that are hurting, that need the gospel. God, we are truly living in a time where people are disillusioned. They're starving. They want something. They want answers. They want more. God, we have that. There's no doubt. We have that. So God, let us leave today just with a burning in our hearts. God, that we are priests that you have set in this generation. And God, until you call us home, may we be found faithful so that when we enter heaven, you will say, enter into your rest, and God, we will need it because we will be exhausted from serving you. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you guys.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Very interesting that this is the first one. It raises a lot of questions. Why wouldn't knowledge be the first one? Why wouldn't knowledge be the first and then moral excellence? Doesn't make sense. I know the word enables us to be a certain way, right? Enables us to be like Christ. What's the reasoning for this? We need to understand what this term moral excellence means. It's the same Greek word translated excellence back in verse 3. Let's look at that. Seeing his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and God through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory, and there's our word, excellence, which is translated moral excellence in our verse. For by these, those qualities, he has granted his precious and magnificent promises. The term moral excellence here is the Greek word arete. It speaks of that which is virtuous or excellent. It speaks of that which is worthy of praise. It's paralleled in Philippians chapter 4 with the idea of whatever is worthy of praise. Set your mind on these things, Philippians 4, 8, right? And whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. And thus we saw last week that it's by God's glory and excellence, his tremendous character that is worthy of praise. We were saved, by the way. It's by his tremendous character that is worthy of praise that we received his word. And here we are to apply all moral excellence and supply it. You see, I believe as we abide in Christ in his precious and magnificent promises, it's that we might partake of the divine nature, right? We become like Christ. And the first thing he says here is as we trust in Christ, believing in him, we're actually to be obedient in the sphere of moral excellence. We are to exhibit the character that emulates the moral excellencies of God that are praiseworthy. His holiness, his righteousness. You know, think about it. The first thing in in situations, we're not unholy, we're not unrighteous. We're to be manifesting the righteous character of Christ as believers. And the word of God enables us to do that by a real relationship with the one in whose character it is. In everyday life situations, we are to be diligently applying, making every effort to allow his righteous character by faith to manifest and permeate our lives. And how do you know about his righteous character? It's in the word of God, and we know it innately because we are in Christ when we abide in him. You know, it's interesting. When people come to faith and they're convicted of sin, they don't have to think, oh, should I go have an affair? They know it's wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a sense in which God brings forth his character in your lives. And he illumines that through his word, by his spirit. We are to, as we trust in him every day, supply moral excellence. It should be part of our lives. It should be part of a true believer's life who is really, truly in a relationship with the one who is morally excellent. So let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter 4, turn there for a second, Ephesians chapter 4. Example of how God's word directs us to the things that are morally excellent as our minds are renewed. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 17. 
He says, therefore, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, also walk in the future of their minds, the way they walk. Their thinking is vain, being darkened in their understanding. They don't get it. They're blind, excluded from the life of God. They're not saved because of the ignorance they don't understand that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. They're hardened in their hearts. All heart, 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 heart thinking, right? And they become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's not morally excellent things, right? Those are not morally excellent things. But notice what he says. But you did not learn Christ in this way. This is not from Christ. That's the way you were before you were saved. This is not what would be coming from a relationship with Christ. You didn't learn him this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, immoral, not morally excellent life, right, based on wrong thinking, you lay aside the old stuff, you take it off, you trust the Lord, you say no to it because you can't in Christ, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Remember, it's his precious promises that we escape the world and we become more like him, right? He says that in the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be, what? Renewed in the spirit of your mind. God's word working your mind. Everything you need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God has been created in what? Righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then practically speaking, it's going to work out in your life. And he then goes on to give examples, real-time examples, laying aside falsehood. We shouldn't be involved in falsehood. Speak truth, right? Lay it aside. There should be a change. I should be morally excellent. I should be angry but not sin, not let the sun go down in my anger. All these things. I should, If I steal, steal no more. There should be moral excellence in my life if I'm trusting Christ. God's word is working that out in my life. First thing on the list, I should be changed. I should be changed. And I guess we all fail and we confess those sins. But these qualities are ours if we're believers. But if sin's in the way, we're going to see something has happened. Something's happened if sin's in the way. So here we see these are real-time actions based on faith in a real relationship. And the first one is bring forth moral excellence. Let me ask you, is your life manifesting moral excellence? Things that are worthy of praise? Your speech, your actions, your attitudes? Is that there? Is that there? Or is it immoral? Is it immoral? Is it not excellent? Is it not praiseworthy? Well, notice there's a second one here, and it's connected. Back in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence. Be diligent to apply it. Be diligent to make the decision to allow God to have you respond rightly in holiness rather than wickedness, right? Be diligent, okay? Then he says, in your faith supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, the next one, knowledge. Gnosis. Knowledge. He's saying, in a practical sense, provide knowledge in the context of your moral excellence. We should increase and grow in knowledge. And obviously, what is this knowledge in? It's in the Lord and his ways and his word, obviously, from his word. Be diligent, make every effort to not only be morally excellent in Christ by his power. Don't forget that. Don't do it on your own. You're a Pharisee. In Christ. And within that, also supply knowledge. We should be growing in our understanding of Christ. 
If you've been a Christian for 30 years and you don't know anything more about the Lord from his word than you did when you came to faith, something is wrong. You should be increasing. These qualities are increasing in your life. You know more and more about your Savior. You're increasing in the knowledge of God through the Word of God. That should be happening. If it isn't, you're not fruitful and you're not useful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you know the same thing you knew before, it's not increasing, something's wrong. Look at Proverbs chapter 2. You see, because there needs to be a desire. There needs to be a desire to increase in the knowledge of God. Proverbs chapter 2. And you're thinking he's only on number 2 and we got 7 to go. I don't know, we should have brought a sack lunch, right? But no, we're going to get through them quick because we'll review them next time, okay? But I want to point out some things here. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon says to his son, my son, if you receive my sayings, and what? Treasure my commandments within you. There's got to be a desire to want to know what God has said, to see the value of his precious and magnificent promises. If you don't have that, then you're not going to grow in the knowledge of God. I'll tell you that right now. It's not going to happen. And that's your problem, at least in that area. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you, what, cry for discernment, you seek her diligently, right? Be diligent in this area, brothers and sisters. Lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for his hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and what? Discover the knowledge of God. It's got to be the right heart. And if you have the right heart, you should be growing in the knowledge of the Lord. It should be one element, moral excellence and knowledge. Well, what's the next one we see? Notice he says, and in your knowledge, verse 6, self Control. Self-control. We all go, uh-oh. Right? <laughs> we all know that battle on a consistent basis, right? Of our desires versus what God says. We know that, right? Moral excellence, his character manifest in you in a daily, real-time basis. Knowledge, growing the knowledge of God through the Word of God. And then here we see self-control. The term egg it's in Greek, you say egg in a sense. Egg kratia. Kratia speaks of mastery. Mastery in. This word speaks of mastery. The ability to master, to control, in context, one's own desires and appetites. It speaks of controlling one's thoughts and thus emotions and desires. Holding every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's self-control. Self-control. You see, the reality is, as we grow in the knowledge of God, walking rightly with Him, He enables us by faith, as we're diligent, to control the inner man or woman, our thinking. You see, what does Proverbs 25, 28 say? Like a city that is broken into without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. The Apostle Paul spoke of this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. One who trusts the Lord, one who says he's not adequate for anything, but yet we do things in the context of our inadequacy as we trust him. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Everybody runs the race. Everyone participates in running, right? But only one receives the prize. Only one wins the race, right? Okay. Run in such a way that you may win. And we're going to see the idea of diligence, by the way. 
And everyone who competes in the games exercises what? Self-control in all things. Athletes use self-control with their body so that they can be better athletes, right? You understand that process, that concept. He says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, believers, something that is forever, imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave. 1 Corinthians 9:27 Make it my slave lest possibly after I preach to others I should be myself disqualified. We know that self-control is a fruit of the spirit of God. But it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't just all of a sudden happen. There is the applying and supplying and acting in the context of faith. We are to supply something we're to step out and actually be self-controlled. Not wait for God to control us, but allow his word by his spirit in the context of a relationship with Jesus to control our thoughts and thus our actions. To say no by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We are to bring forth self-control. And that's in the context of moral excellence, knowledge that we're increasing in, diligent in faith, obviously. So let me ask you this. Are you increasing in your self-control? Are your thoughts and actions and emotions, is your self-control of them increasing? Is it increasing in your life? Or is your spirit just whatever you feel prompted to do, you just do. You have no control, you just do it. Well, that's the life of someone who doesn't know Christ, by the way. No power, but in Christ we have the power to say no and to trust in Him. So notice the next one, and this list is a specific order, perseverance. And in your self-control, Perseverance, Greek word hupomone, it means to remain under. It means persevering. And what is it that brings about to be able to remain under difficult situations as believers? By the way, when you trust in Christ, you obey Him, you're going to suffer. Okay? You know, this life is not a life of getting everything. It's a life of sacrifice. Yielding to Christ and His will. So many Christians don't want to give up anything as the Lord brings it in their life. But here, when you do the right thing, you're going to suffer. You know what? You may lose friends for doing the right thing. People may not appreciate you when you do the right thing in a righteous way in Christ. Whatever it might be, you may be persecuted for doing the right thing in Christ. And guess what? We should be remaining under, and it should be increasing. This should be a quality of one who has a real relationship with Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, I'll read it for you. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of what? Your faith. This is in the concept of faith. Produces what? Hupomone, endurance or perseverance. When God tests your faith through difficulties, it brings about perseverance. You see, in perseverance, we see is a very good example in the context of Hebrews chapter 12. When we look at the truth of God from an eternal perspective and apply it, we can persevere. Turn to Hebrews 12 for a second. I'm going to read it for time's sake as you're turning there. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's all the testifiers in chapter 11 who testify that by faith they endured and they made it. And they all had eternal perspectives, by the way. He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race with what? Endurance before us. And then we fix our eyes on Jesus, verse 2, the author and perfecter of the faith, who what? For the joy set before him, for the eternal realities, what? Endured. When I am growing in my relationship with Christ, I am looking at the eternal and not the temporal. 
and I should be increasing in that. Right? What about the next one back in 2 Peter 1? And in your perseverance, godliness. We've seen that before. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Greek term speaks of uh, you, sabia, well, you, and then sabia meaning reverence. It reflects an inner attitude of worship and reverence for God that is pleasing, and it manifests in our behavior. We should be increasing in a reverence for the Lord, in a reverence for Him. If I don't have that, something is wrong. I should be increasing in it. I should be growing. It should be a quality of mind, godliness. Yes, we fail. Yes, we sin. But we have a reverence for the Lord. We confess our sin. We're forgiven because He's faithful and just. You see, these are things we should be diligently pursuing, by the way. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, but flee these things, those old things that are of the flesh, you man of God, and pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Pursue these things. Are you pursuing godliness? Are you diligently desiring to be more reverent of the Lord in your life on a daily basis? Are you diligently desiring that? Well, notice the second to the last one here. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. This speaks of brotherly love. It's love for the body of Christ. It's love for each other. You see... It is part of our new nature. We don't have it in our old nature, and it should be there. It should be there. If it's not there, something's wrong. But it should be increasing. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now as for the love of the brethren, Paul writes, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves, he says, are taught by God to love one another. First Peter chapter 122, Peter in his first letter says that we've been saved, we've been born again unto a sincere love other brethren, if you are not around the body of Christ, you're not increasing in love. I'll tell you that right now. You don't have a sincere love for the brethren. You have a sincere love for yourself and your own time and your own schedule. God changes us and gives us a love for one another. It should be there and it should be increasing. You know, there's so many passages. i got so many I could share, but I'm not going to share it today. The last one, and in your brotherly kindness, love. It's agape love. Some people say, well, that must be love for the world because he's talked about love for your brother. I don't agree. I believe this agape love here is love for God. This final one which tops all of them. What did Jesus say in terms of the greatest commandment? He said in Matthew 22, 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We see that true love in 1 John 5 is manifest in obedience to God's word. If I love him, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Are you increasing in that? Is that part of your character? You see, the reality is these characteristics are to be ours as believers. And if they are yours and are increasing, you're neither useless or unfruitful in your relationship with Jesus. If they're not increasing and or not yours, your relationship with Jesus is nothing right now. You're not useful. You're not fruitful. I'd call that a zero. 
Some of us need to examine our lives and recognize where am I at with the Lord. Today we've seen a passage that helps us do that. These are characteristics in the context of faith in the God who has supplied everything we need that should be manifest in the life of a believer, and they should be increasing. Should be increasing. Some of you may have prayed a prayer, said, I trust Jesus, whatever it is, and you have never had these qualities. It's probably because you're not saved. And God is so gracious. He loves you. He does not want you to go to your eternal damnation thinking you know Jesus. Would you humble yourself and acknowledge your sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Because when you do, he'll manifest these things in you. He'll do that. He does it all. Some of you believers realize, hey, I'm not increasing. I'm stagnant. And I would say there's sin in the way, and we're going to see that next week. There's sin in the way. I've forgotten the basic realities of my relationship with Jesus. And guess what? Through word forgetfulness, we see there's always sin. So with that in mind, we've seen today faith that works. Is your faith working? We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.